This is Genetics in Your World, a podcast by the Genetics Society of America Early Career Leadership Program, where we delve into the latest genetics research featuring highlighted content from GSA journals. This is your host for this episode, David Petey, a first-year PhD student at Brown University. And today we'll be discussing Dr. Dick Gamalkiewicz's recent publication in genetics on evading resistant to gene drives. Upon completing his PhD in applied mathematics, At the University of California, Davis, Dick continued his research as a postdoctoral researcher in the zoology department at the University of Texas, after which he started as an assistant professor in the Department of Systematics and Ecology at the University of Kansas. Dick is currently a professor in the School of Biological Sciences at Washington State University, where his lab studies theoretical population biology by utilizing mathematical models to study foundational questions about evolutionary and demographic processes among interacting species and in populations facing environmental change. So Dick, how did you get interested in science? Well, you know, I was thinking back to that, and I think it really traces back to reading these Time Life books and looking at science fiction when I was a kid. And, you know, that eventually made me become especially interested in chemistry. But one of the first things I learned when I went to college, when I took a honors chemistry course, is that I'm really bad at chemistry. And so... Fortunately, I was good at math, and and that became my focus. Later, I did an undergraduate project with a mathematical geneticist and worked in the summers doing field work for an entomologist who happened to be working on integrated pest management and worked with a mathematician. And so those kinds of things led me to an interest in theoretical population biology and population genetics. Awesome. So... um... Getting into your recent paper, um, for our listeners who, who don't know, what exactly is a gene drive and why are they important? Well, gene drives are, um, they're sometimes called selfish genetic elements, and they have a, an unfair advantage in transmission from one generation to the next. So, for example, segregation disorders are a type of gene drive that distort regular meiosis so that, you know, gametes that are produced by heterozygotes, which according to standard Mendelian laws of segregation would normally carry equal amounts of both alleles, instead carry a majority or maybe only one of the gametes and that carry the drive allele. And so gene drives, you know, they, they occur naturally or, and I think were first discovered in the 1920s. Uh, these gene drives distort sex ratios in Drosophila. But what makes them really interesting for like biocontrol is that the transmission advantage that I described can be so strong that it can even overcome any deleterious pleiotropic effects that those drives can have on viability or fertility, offspring, sex ratio, and so forth. And in fact, in the 50s, people developed population genetics models that showed that these gene drives could um, spread through a population because of that unfair advantage of transmission, like within about 10 generations. And if you think about mosquitoes, say, that carry malaria, if their generation time is about two weeks, that means you might be able to push some kind of uh, 
a drive through a population within um, just a matter of months. What are the potential uses uh, for gene drives? Well, I mentioned, um, you know, it was recognized that they might be useful for biocontrol, but, you know, the in the past, people just had to hopefully discover some gene drives in some like pest species or maybe some disease vector species. But with the discovery of these CRISPR-Cas systems, people realized that they could actually design and engineer gene drives for a number of, of different systems. And so that's why gene drives have become so you know, exciting in this current age is that people can actually design gene drives with these unfair transmission advantage to help eradicate uh, malaria vectors or agricultural pests or invasive species. So that's why there's a lot of interest in these gene drives currently. Uh, the the CRISPR-Cas system really has made them uh, not just uh, not something that you hope might show up. People can actually design it fairly easily design and introduce these into real organisms. So you mentioned that uh, people are designing these gene drives for different biocontrol mechanisms. Are, are people doing this now? And if, and if not, why not? People are very much doing this now. There's kind of two classes of these um, engineered gene drives, there's something called modification drives. And in those cases, you might design a gene drive that carries what's called a cargo. And the cargo might affect the ability of plasmodium to be, to cause some kind of sickness, okay? But they don't necessarily affect the insect vector that's carrying the pathogen. The other kind of drive and the, the drive that this paper that we're discussing was focused on are what are called suppression or eradication drives, which actually affect the insect carrier itself and, and drive its population sizes to low, either lower levels or even extinction. You know, there's obvious interest in controlling malaria and managing, you know, agricultural pests eradicating uh, invasive species. And these gene drives are basically self-propagating control methods. And, and that's why they seem really exciting. However, we know from the history of disease and pest management that there are just so many examples of harmful and even disastrous unanticipated consequences of control methods. So that makes a self-propagating control method like gene drives especially scary, you know, it's just fraught with ethical concerns. Uh, so those concerns, of course, need to be balanced with their promise of eradicating diseases and helping human he health, control of pests, and, you know, um, maybe eradicating invasive species that are upsetting natural ecosystems. So that's why these gene drives are extremely compelling, but also scary. So what got you interested in studying suppression gene drives specifically? Let me, can I just make one comment on that last point? So yes. because, you know, these gene drives as a control method are 
because we know the history of unintended consequences in disease and pest management, it's really hard to test whether these gene drive systems that are being engineered, if they'll actually work in the real world, it's just unethical to introduce them in the real world. That leaves laboratory systems where they can be studied and it's actually been verified that these systems really do work in mosquitoes and other organisms. The other avenue though, to try to look at their real world, world potential is theory. So that's kind of where my work comes into play. You asked about how I became interested in studying these suppression gene drives. I've actually never worked on them or known much about gene drives until just a few years ago. And my interest in this project could be described as a combination of serendipity and opportunism. And let me just explain quickly. So I've been interested for, I'd say, over 25 years in understanding on a conceptual level how evolution operates in populations that face a risk of extinction. And this usually involves formulating and studying models that combine population genetics with um, demography or um, community ecology models. Um, my co-author on this paper, Jim Bull, um, he's been interested in the science of engineered control mechanisms for a long time. And when he retired from the University of Texas a few years ago, he moved to Moscow, Idaho, which is where I actually live. And he took a position at the University of Idaho. So we have these two research institutions, Washington State University and University of Idaho within 10 miles of each other. And, you know, so he could keep doing research in his spare time between gardening, hunting, and fishing. He took on a faculty position there, and eventually we found each other. And so, you know, since the goal of suppression and eradication gene drives is to reduce populations or cause their extinct, extinction, Jim's interests and mine kind of naturally converged and led to this project. I see. So you mentioned the the caution around using these um, gene drives in practice. So what are the resistances to these suppression drives? When we're thinking of these homing endonuclease genes, as they're called, um, so that's one of the types of drives, they look for a very specific sequence in the genome to, to cut and, and maybe copy the gene drive uh, in there, or maybe just cut. So one form of resistance is to actually have a mutation in the recognition sequence, okay? So that's a very simple form of resistance. And so for these CRISPR systems, that was a, that was a big problem. If a sequence that's being targeted isn't recognized by CRISPR anymore, it can't be cut. And so it has this tremendous advantage because it's not going to be subject to this unfair um, advantage in transmission. However, people, uh, geneticists have been really clever and they've been able to design CRISPR drives that maybe have multiple targets within a gene and you only need to find one of them to cut it. So that form of resistance has really been addressed 
I think pretty well with technological um, advances or even there's even parts of the genome that people have discovered that are non-mutable. So that's what are what's called uh, allelic resistance because these changes in uh, the DNA are segregate across from the, the drive CRISPR alleles. What we started to wonder about, because we know from the long literature of gene drives, is that there's other ways that you can cause uh, these gene drives to fail. And for example, you can have some parts, the CRISPR system can be interfered with, perhaps, or maybe there's a disruption of the nuclease activity that, that cuts the genome that is centered in other parts of the genome. So we call this kind of resistance non-allelic resistance. So it's known to occur, but the question is, how important is it? And actually, could it evolve and how quickly could it evolve? Um, and that's compared to the allelic resistance, which we know quite a bit about. If you want to introduce a gene drive to suppress or eradicate a population, you want it to work, right? And, you know, the history of antibiotics, pesticides, um, herbicides, and so forth, we know that resistance evolves all the time. And I already mentioned about how allelic resistance could easily evolve in these gene drive systems specifically. So what about, what's the danger of these other non-allelic forms of resistance and what can we do to make sure that they don't undermine the goal of spreading these gene drives through a system so that we get successful biological control or disease eradication. So that was the goal of our study is to understand more generally how resistance to these um, gene drives could evolve. I mentioned you know, that people have done experimental work and we know that these non-allelic forms of resistance arise and can spread, but it's very difficult to do experiments. And if you think about it, if we're looking at for like natural ex examples of how gene drives successfully eradicate a population, it's not going to be found in nature because those populations would be extinct right? That's a successful gene drive. Um, so the only examples we have of gene drive systems that we can study are those where some resistance has actually evolved. So if the goal is to try to successfully eradicate species, you're kind of left with maybe doing deliberate laboratory experiments where you, your goal is extinction of your study population, which I think sounds pretty strange to an empiricist or to do theoretical studies where you can follow the population dynamics uh, using uh, some sort of mathematical model. The quantitative aspect of this is really important because you can capture the most fundamental mechanisms that are involved in the spread of gene drives and resistance to gene drives. And we know that there are certain elements that are involved in these gene drive systems. We know there are effects quantitatively from years of studying genetic systems, studying selection, and so forth. The quantitative models then allow us to 
put together these different elements of the gene drive system and its evolution and basically use mathematics to crank through what are logical consequences of putting all those various components together. So this lets us quantify the importance of different components to drive and resistance evolution. And it can even reveal a lot of non-intuitive mechanisms about what's behind resistance evolution. And that actually occurred in this study. And then kind of a last point is that these quantitative models allow us to study a lot of known components that are actually hard to measure directly. And so another hope for these models is it might reveal indirect ways to measure hidden processes. So just not necessarily related to gene drives, but if you think about how people estimate mutation rates, well, the direct way would be to study millions or millions of um, or descendants of a particular individual and see if one of them's different, right? That's clearly impractical. And I, I can only think of a couple of experimental um, examples of where people tried to do that. One was in guinea pigs of all um, places. What people normally do is look at patterns of genetic variation at certain sites in the genome, and they use a theoretical result that lets you estimate what the mutation rate should be to be consistent with that pattern of genetic variation. So the hope is that with these models of gene drives and resistance, we might also be able to use some of the theoretical results to help us think of ways to measure these kind of very difficult to sample processes, um, including just the effectiveness of resistance or the extent of genetic linkage um, or the selection on the drives themselves. So what, what were your key findings about evading resistance? Here's a few of the things that we found. The first one is that the frequency of resistance itself at the level of a population is not affected by transmission. The, un, the, the unfair advantage of the gene drive doesn't actually affect the frequency of resistance at all, okay? Which is very interesting, very unexpected. But when you work through the, the mathematics of transmission, that's a very general result. The other thing we found is that the transmission of these gene drives, especially with segregation distortion, they tend to promote a genetic association between the wild type drive allele, the one that's you know being driven away, and resistance alleles. So you can capture this association, this genetic association with a number that's called linkage disequilibrium. Intuitively, what it is, it's, a, it's basically a covariance between the state of an allele at one locus, the drive locus, and at another locus, a resistance locus. So in this case, what we found is that there's negative linkage disequilibrium, which means there's a negative association between the alleles at the drive locus and the resistance locus. And so negative means that you tend to find gametes carrying wild type drive alleles with resistance alleles or the reverse. The drive alleles tend to occur with non-resistance wild type resistance alleles. So 
the transmission process, even though it doesn't affect resistance directly, it does affect this association and tends to put the wild type drive alleles in association with resistance alleles. So that's kind of interesting, um, but on just all by itself, it's not clear. So what implication does that have? So remember the whole point of drive alleles in these suppression systems is to cause the population to have lower fitness, right? And so what that means is after transmission, these drive alleles are going to actually be reduced in frequency by selection in favor of the wild type drive alleles. But since the resistance alleles are tend to be associated with, in that case, the favored drive wild type alleles, they actually increase in frequency as an indirect consequence of the increase of the wild type drive allele during selection. So this is an example of what's been called for, for many, many years, genetic hitchhiking. So that's how non-allelic resistance evolves. It evolves by this process, this indirect process called genetic hitchhiking. And the hitchhiking is a lot stronger in its effects the greater the negative association is between the alleles at the drive locus and the resistance locus. That's a big finding about the mechanism of what we, what's promoting the evolution of resistance. It's this negative association in genetic hitchhiking. Another thing we found is that, so even if resistance fails to stop a drive from spreading through a population, which happens a lot, the resistance will actually ratchet up in frequency. And what that means is that when you try to introduce an additional resistance proof gene drive, the scope for doing that becomes much more limited because it's harder to avoid resistance when resistance is more common to begin with. What, what are your suggestions to people or to researchers who are designing these uh suppression drives based off the findings from your study. Right. So that's what I think is so interesting about this study is that it has some pretty clear implications for how to design what you might think of as a resistance proof gene drive suppression system. First of all, the drive should be relatively mild in its effects on the population. So it should have mild effects on survival and reproduction because if it's too harsh in its effects, that leads to a very rapid increase of the wild type drive allele and therefore the spread of resistance because of its association. So drives need to be mild in their effects on population suppression, okay? A second thing that we recommend is that drives should will be more likely to avoid resistance if they're only loosely linked genetically. Now that might be something that's more difficult to, to actually control if you don't know where the sources of resistance are in the genome, but that's something to be to pay attention to. So for example, you don't want to have allelic resistance. You don't want to put your drive in a non-recombining part of the genome because that will actually promote resistance. And then another thing is that the drive should evolve all the way to fixation. And that's because the association I talked about that actually promotes the evolution of resistance actually goes away 
once you don't have any variation left at the gene drive. And then kind of the final thing is if possible, you should resistance should be costly because that also promotes the spread of, of drives without the spread of resistance. The problem though with the first finding that gene drives should be mild in order to avoid resistance presents a bit of a problem for people who want to suppress populations because they might want to suppress them to extinction. But if you try that in a single gene drive, you're very, very likely to have resistance evolve quickly and basically undermine your efforts of population control. So it leads to a situation where you have to kind of use think of population suppression as happening in maybe small steps a little bit of uh, suppression at a time in order to reach maybe a very strong eradication goal so dick um what are the limitations of the model you can use concerning the caution researchers have with using suppression drives one thing our models assumes is that or many of our results is that our our populations are well mixed and um, they're, they're not structured. And this scenario is extremely favorable to the spread of gene drives. Um, so of course the real world has a lot of spatial structure, also various levels of inbreeding and those kinds of structures, either spatial structure or structure within populations because of mating between relatives, they can undermine gene drives. So there are other researchers who are looking both, well, on a theoretical level, how spatial structure can prevent gene drives from successfully um, spreading through a population. And then my co-author, Jim Bull, has actually been looking at how inbreeding itself might undermine gene drives. So the kind of the fuel that for these gene drives are these heterozygotes um, because that's where the gene drive can get the unfair transmission advantage. It doesn't get an unfair transmission advantage in homozygotes. So we know from basic genetics that more inbreeding leads to fewer heterozygotes. And so one way that you can undermine gene drives is to like have some other part of the genome that say supports submating or something like that. And so that's another concern about how gene drives can be undermined that isn't captured by our model specifically. And, and lastly, what research questions do you plan to tackle next? You know, this study suggests a lot of limitations about gene drives and probably the most glaring one is that resistance proof gene drives can't be too severe in their effects on a population. They have to be relatively mild. So how can you, as a, a manager or somebody, a, um, a public health official, maybe hope to suppress some kind of pathogen or a disease vector to popula population levels that are very low that might reach a goal for public health or pest management? And so the idea that we had is to maybe introduce multiple resistance proof, i.e. mild gene drives. And that's something that we are looking at right now. Um, we're also looking more at the question of how 
potent is inbreeding as a form of resistance? And are there things that can be done to avoid that route? And then the final thing that we're looking at is to try to model very directly the ecological consequences of gene drives. In other words, try to model what specifically happens to the size of a population as a gene drive sweeps through it. What we've been talking about and most people in the, the gene drive world right now talk about is what's the ultimate outcome of the spread of a gene drive? And that would be everybody carries the drive, they're homozygotes, and they all have the same lower fitness because of that. But what happens to the population size during the course of it sweeping, the, the drive sweeping from low to high levels? And so that's another uh, line of uh, research that we're looking at currently. Very interesting. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, Dick, and good luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you. I've really enjoyed um, talking to you about this. The Genetics in Your World podcast is produced by the Multimedia Subcommittee of the Early Career Leadership Program, a part of the Genetic Society of America. We invite you to visit the Society's website for more information on how you can get involved with the genetics scientific community.